We have a great chapter text before us this evening. It was one of those that I started thinking, okay, yeah, this will be a full sermon. And like, oh, this will be a full two sermons. And oh, this might be three sermons. So we're going to do part of 1 Samuel chapter 15 tonight. There's a lot to talk about and a lot to consider. This text is, I've been, has been working on my heart. I, I trust. So, well, I'm excited to uh, pick up where we left off, however long ago. Uh, several weeks ago, we left it off at the end of 1 Samuel 14. We're, we're nearing the end of a second major division in the book. Uh, many scholars say that you can divide, well, common people can look at this and read and say, hey, look, there's the first part of the book talks a lot about the prophet Samuel, and then kind of the middle third third of the book talks about uh, Saul, and then the last third talks about, guess who? David, right? So, so we're nearing the end of, of uh, the portion on Saul. Saul, of course, has been selected to be Israel's king, but not under the right circumstances. Israel has just recently infamously rejected God, the God who thunders against his enemies. And they have instead chosen or requested to have a king. 1 Samuel 8 says that we may also be like the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So we've read recently that almost, well, as a concession, God gives them a king. He anoints Saul to be his anointed one, but it's under all of the wrong circumstances. So right from the start of Saul's kingship, we've seen that his, his reign, his service in Israel has been marked by disobedience and trouble. And we are again reminded that wherever there's disobedience, trouble will soon follow. And that is the story for Saul. Even though he's only been king for four chapters, he, uh, his, his kingdom has, his kingship has been marked with doom and failure. In chapter 13, verse 14, we, we read where God says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. Disobedience has completely ruined Saul's life, and we should be reminded that it will do the same to ours. But for the time being, in Samuel, Saul is still king. And so as we come to the end of chapter 14, uh, we get a summary of Saul's kingship. Uh, I did not get to this last paragraph, these last two paragraphs of, uh, of chapter 14. Um, I guess, yeah, starting in, starting in verse, verse 47. So let's read 47 through 52. So I guess we're in chapter 14 uh, for a moment. 14 verse 47. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side. Against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly, and he struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, Malkashua. The names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, 
The name of the younger was Michal. The name of Saul's wife was Anahiam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man, or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Let's go ahead and pray once more. Lord, our prayer is the same as it is every time we come to your word. Speak to us. Speak to our hearts. Prepare us to hear and use your spirit to give us understanding. But I pray that in our time together tonight, that this would not be wasted, that it would be profitable. I pray that my sin or my pride would not get in the way of any work that you intend to do. And so, Father, would you let my words fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. We want to hear from you. So grant us that mercy tonight, we pray. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we have this sort of concluding paragraph, this odd, oddly placed summary of Saul kind of in the midst of the story of him, right? As if you've read Samuel, you'll know that Saul is going to be a very central figure, much more in this book. And so it's a strange place to put this. And as I was thinking about this, there's part of me that says this could sort of be part of Saul's rejection. Remember, Saul has been rejected. And in chapter 15, our text tonight, we'll see that rejection continued and intensified in a sense. But in a sense, I wonder if this is almost part of Saul's rejection because it's like an obituary while you're still living, right? Please don't write my obituary. I'm still living, right? Don't, 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 I'm, I'm not dead yet sort of, sort of thing. But, but there's a sense where this is a, it's a positive summary of Saul's life. I think a couple of things we can learn from this is one is that in spite of Saul's sinfulness, God still uses him. God is not limited by the sinfulness of man. He will accomplish his purposes and he can use a faithful man or he can use an unfaithful man. He prefers to use faithful men and he tends to find them, but he can accomplish his purposes through the hands of any man or animal as we have seen in, in recent days. God has no, no limitations. Saul has been successful. He, he had enemies on all four sides of him. And God used him in spite of his wickedness and in spite of his uh, poor leadership to rescue Israel. Verse 47 says, wherever he turned, he caused havoc. He would have been an excellent politician in D.C. these days, right? But we, we also get a summary here of Saul's fruitful domestic life, right? We read about the fact that he had sons and he had daughters. He had a wife. He had an uncle. He had a grandfather. He had a very large battle and a large successful military that he had built. Really, by most accounts, Saul would be considered to be successful. He's had a very successful, very fruitful life, professionally, politically, financially, at home, right? He has, look at his army, look at his battles, look at his family. But we all know that the appearance of success is not the same thing as success. 
looking ahead, a famous verse in Samuel, chapter 16, verse 7, when God is speaking of, Daniel, of David, he says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Remember, tall, Saul is what? Tall. David is not. Don't look at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Church, I think that we must constantly set before us, again and again and again, the reminder that the success of our lives is not assessed by the world, but by God. We can have all of the trappings of success. And there's different, different ways to measure success. And you may have a different standard, a different metric for success than the person sitting beside you. We want, we want different things. And the world has a great number of metrics. But we must remember that you can be very successful in the eyes of the world and be a complete spiritual failure. I don't see any reason for that to be not to be true even for those of us in the church. The American church today is marked by many professing Christians who profess Christ and yet our lives are indistinguishable to the world's. I don't just mean our behavior, but what we value. Do we value the same things that the world values? The Bible makes it clear that you can be successful in the world and a spiritual failure. It's so easy for us as Christians to be pulled into this gravitational pull and to live for the kingdom of the world. How often do you think, oh, it'd be nice to make more money? How often do you think that? How often do you feel insecure about your abilities or your finances or your portfolio or your decor, your decor at home or your body or whatever it is that the world is saying matters. We are pulled into this constantly. I was reading the largest sandcastle in the world. Apparently people do this. It's 48 feet tall, 48 feet, 8 inches tall. It took nine days to build. It was built by the Sudar Sand Sand Institute, not kidding, in India, on a beach in India, Purai, India, on February 10th of this year. It was incredible. You should see the picture of it until it rained. <laughs> right? We can build these incredible structures, but the rain is coming. Each one of us is building a legacy. We're building some sort of legacy. And let me just encourage you tonight, brothers and sisters. Are you laboring to store up spiritual treasures? Treasures that cannot be touched by the forces of corruption? Are you putting the bulk of your efforts into building a comfortable dwelling for yourself on your corner of the kingdom of the world? Church, we know it's going to all be destroyed with fire. What kind of legacy are you building? What kind of work are you giving yourself to? What do you dream about? Are you dreaming about work for the kingdom? Or are you dreaming about how to add more stuff? What sort of legacy are you building? How much of your life's work will last through eternity? I'm not just talking about church things, right? That's not what I'm talking about. Whereas the Bible makes it clear that we can work for the Lord in whatever capacity he has called us to serve. 
But you can serve the Lord in your occupation or you can serve yourself. Are you doing kingdom building? We must fight the temptation to use the world's measuring sticks. The measuring sticks of comfort and wealth and prestige and personal fulfillment and beauty and leisure and whatever, whatever is your thing, right? We know those things lie. They all fade. They all fade. We live right beside a graveyard and it's very helpful for us. We like to take walks to the graveyard and we're just reminded life is vapor. Live like it's a vapor. Live like your grass for we know that our days will come to an end. A great poet once said, Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's let Saul's little midlife obituary remind us. Let's store up treasures in heaven. Let's do kingdom work and not build sandcastles before the fire. Okay, let's turn now to chapter 15. In chapter 13, we have to keep in mind that Samuel has told Saul that the kingdom is going to be taken from him and from his family. It's a tragic it's a tragic story. And in chapter 15, we, send, we see Saul's destructive slide continue. Let's look now, let's look at these first 23 verses. We have some interesting things to discuss. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I've noticed what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men, uh, 200,000, that could just be a number of troops. The word for troop and a thousand was the same, so it could be, it's a big number is the way I take that. Uh, 200,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Malachites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agog, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret, could be translated repent, that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, 
And it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears, and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, They brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we've devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, there are a number of interesting things to discuss, and I want to start with the concept of holy war. Don't know if you've ever heard a sermon about Old Testament holy war. We have a religion that celebrates and worships a God who tells his people, go kill babies. And this is a problem that we have to deal with. It's something we need to understand and to think about carefully. Right at the very beginning of this chapter, we read about the importance of obedience. I'm going to talk first about verses 1 through 9. Verse 1, Samuel, remember Samuel is the mouthpiece of the Lord. He speaks to the Lord, to the king, and the king does what God says, right? So God tells Samuel, Samuel tells Saul, Saul supposedly does what God says. And he says, you are the king and you're made to be the obeyer, the one who obeys the word of the Lord. And now God is speaking, and here's what he says. Verse 3, go up to strike the Amalekites and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, and all the animals. Okay, does this bother you? Some of you are like, oh, the poor animals, that's so sad, <laughs> right? I know, I've seen your bumper stickers, right? <laughs> Does, does God embarrass you a little bit here? Do we tell this Bible story to our kids? 
Does it make you squirm, right? I mean, it, it literally, some translations describe specifically, be sure to destroy infants and nursing children. Do you wish you could take, if it was up to you, chapter 15, verses 1 through 9, just take it out? Or at least take that phrase out about the kids? Do you, I mean, do you, do you wish you could take that out? The notion of holy war is very hard for us Westerners to swallow. The world scoffs at God. It always has. It always will. And it scoffs at his Bible. And one of the texts that they scoff at is a text like this. I've heard, um, what's his name? The comedian, that John, John Stewart, um, I think is his name, specifically referenced this text and talk about what an atrocious God Christians worship. Pundits who mock the living God for such an action like this. Many liberal commentators, many liberal pastors, even some of our more conservative brothers and sisters will try to dismiss this with a variety of tactics, theological gymnastics that gets you in all sorts of uncomfortable, unnatural positions. So what do we do with this? Well, first... I think we need to be very careful when a portion of the Bible does not sit well with us. We need to be very, very careful because that is when we are very tempted to twist and manipulate. And right? We want to try to understand, but we must be very careful. So our posture at the very beginning should be, let us remember that the counsels of the Lord are only known to him. He does not take you as his counselor. He does not explain all of his ways to us. So we must begin with a posture of humility. Though we can question the Lord in order to gain understanding, we are not in a position to question his character. So we must trod carefully, right? We can work to reconcile how does this fit with Christ and the message that Christ preached. How does this commit? How does this fit with the Ten Commandments? How does this fit with the call to love your neighbor? We can, we can wrestle with those questions, but we must always default to God quickly and trod carefully. We need to consider the context. The Amalekites, uh, the Amalekite context is very important in this one. Um, verse 2, God explains to us his motive. He tells us exactly what's going on here. He explains why he's going to totally annihilate the Amalekites. He says, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Israel. So God is calling Saul to attack and destroy the Amalekites who had bad history with Israel. It was not retaliation in a sense, but it was because of past grievances. If you go back and review, you can review this account in Exodus chapter 17 and also in Deuteronomy 25. And that those, those passages tell us how the Amalekites attacked Israel. And they did it, they were, it was very lame, right? It was a cheap shot. They did it while Israel was passing through Sinai at the beginning of or the midway of the Exodus. And this, this is one of the, this is the famous battle where uh, Aaron and Hur held Moses' arms up while God defeated the Amalekites. If his arms fell, right, they would, they would lose. If his arms were held up, God defeated them. But this is, these are the people who, uh, who instigated that. And if you read the Deuteronomy account, you get a sense that this was a dirty attack, right? This is, 
This was, this was cheap, right? The Amalekites attacked Israel at the rear, which is where the weakest and most infirm of the Israelites would have been. The elderly, the sick, the tired, the weary, right? Deuteronomy 25, it says, Remember how he attacked you. I'm reading verse 18. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And then it says, and he did not fear God. So God made a commitment to Moses. Listen as I read. This is Exodus 17, 14. Uh, same incident, a different, a different account of it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this down as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So God had made a promise and he said, Write it down and read it to your kids. I'm going to utterly blot out this nation. Okay? And so we see that there's, some, there's a cause of this. Now, here we are, 300 years later. Another Bible time reminds us that God's time is not like our time. Right? You read about these, it took Moses how long to build the ark? Right? Like, God's timing is not like our timing. I need to remind myself of that. Right? Make a note. And now here we are 300 years later, God is fulfilling his promise to Israel. God is going to fulfill his promise even if you're waiting hundreds of years. He's going to fulfill his promise. Furthermore, it's clear that uh, Amalek has continued in wickedness. If you look down, I'm back in 1 Samuel 15. Uh, this was helpful for me. In verse 18, he specifically calls them the sinners, right? So, so we, can, we can learn from that that in 300 years, they have not changed their ways. They have not repented like Nineveh did, right? They have not, uh, they have not called out to the Lord, but they have continued in their sinful ways and do not see, do not fear the Lord. But God sees them. God sees their sin. And so now God is commanding Saul to be the hand of his vengeance. Okay? So that's the context, and this already helps. But still, what do we make of this? And more specifically, should we worship God for this? Right? Is we could take this and simply try to explain how it is that, you know, we still kind of believe in this God. But can you worship God for 1 Samuel 15? Can you worship God for destroying the Amalekites? We better. We better for all of the deeds of the Lord will praise him, right? We see this all throughout the scripture. So let me give you, I wrote down three, but I think I have four. Four reasons to praise God, the God of wrath. Four reasons to praise God for his vengeance. The key application here, before I even get to one, so maybe this is five, I don't know. The key application here is that the Bible teaches us that God is slow to anger, but that does not mean that he's not angry. He is slow to anger, but he gets angry. Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means pardon. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. 
Church, we must remember that just because God is slow to anger, it does not mean that he is not angry. Slowness is not inactivity. We should always understand God's patience as God's righteous wrath on hold. Think about it like this. We should think of God's wrath coming towards sinners like it was a package that was mailed from some distant place in the world and is slowly traveling. And one day it will land on the doorstep of the sinner. God's patience is God's righteousness and his wrath on hold. One day it will arrive on your door. So the first reason to praise God and to respond to God, the God of vengeance and the God of wrath, is we should, we should first consider the awful wrath of God. All of mankind, including those who are safe from God, those of us who are in Christ, should pause and consider the wrath of God. And we can even worship him for it. Because we understand, if we read our Bibles well and if we think a little bit, that God's wrath flows out of his righteousness. This is why we are tempted to apologize for wrath because we only see sinful versions of it, right? But God's wrath is an expression of his righteousness. Which means, think about it with me, if God is holy, then he hates sin. He has a white hot hatred for sin. God has read Romans 12.9, abhor what is evil, and God obeys that. God abhors what is evil. You and I should abhor what is evil. We do not judge evil like God does, but we must hate evil. We should abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. So we should never apologize for the wrath of God. Because God's wrath is always good and it is always perfectly just. The Amalekites were unrepentant sinners and God eventually unloads all of his wrath on unrepentant sinners. And the same is true for our neighbors and for our children and for our lost family members if they do not come to know the Lord. God's wrath is something, J.I. Packer I think says it like this, he says that uh, God's wrath is something that people always choose for themselves. God never forces his wrath on someone. God always gives it to those who choose it. And that's what we do in our sin. Sinners choose to sin and in doing so choose God's wrath. It's never forced on anyone. God is a perfect judge who has every right to punish evil when and how he sees fit. Another way to think about it is that this is that God is only angry where anger is called for. God is only angry where anger is called for and it's his prerogative to respond. Remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 2? Do you remember Hannah's prayer? And we said that that prayer, that song was going to be really like a blueprint for the book of Samuel. Well, in that it says the Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He rises up and he sends down to Sheol. That is God's prerogative. Life and death are in the hands of God. He can take it and give it as he pleases. No apology, no explanation. He is the God of life. We must consider not just part, but the full portrait of the living God and resist any inclination to make him in our own image. Quoting G.I. Packer, he says, the Bible labors to make the point that just as God is good to those who trust him, so he is terrible 
to those who do not. It is true. A second thing we should do is we should marvel at his patience. We should marvel at God's patience. We must not miss the incredible patience of God in this text. God gave the wicked Amalekites a 300-year grace period. 300 undeserved years to turn and repent. That's 10 generations of patience and mercy. How much has he given you? Praise God for the patience he's had with me and did not destroy me in my first sin. Praise God for his mercy. Numbers 14, 18, again, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. We should not grow callous to God's patience with us as if it is a right or something he owes us, as if it is due to us. We should praise him for it and never presume upon it. As I look at the wickedness around me, as I look at even the wickedness in my own heart, I marvel that God is still showing us patience. You know, we read that, I found it, I find it ironic that we read this passage and we squirm about the fact that God would kill nursing infants, yet we are a nation that systematically slaughters our babies. God have mercy on us. He is and will be completely justified to bring the full force of his wrath on us. God have mercy on us. We shouldn't marvel that he hasn't done it. We shouldn't marvel and praise him that he has not slaughtered us. He's kind and he is patient. The third thing that we should do as we consider God's vengeance is we should take comfort in it. We should take comfort in the vengeance of God. We should carefully study the wrath of God for it's a source of comfort to us. In one sense, we rejoice to know that God's going to destroy the enemies of his people. God doesn't like it when the world messes with his children. He's going to deal with that. He's going to deal with it. Though he permits now his flock to be scattered and persecuted, and though he permits martyrs, there must be no mistaking it. God will settle every account justly. Every act of injustice will be settled, either in hell or on the cross. God will bring justice this should be comfort for us. In Isaiah 35, 4, God says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, and he will come and save you. God will make right every single wrong you suffer, big and small. That's a great comfort to us. What this means, in part, is that this keeps us from taking matters into our own hands. If you have carefully studied diligently the vengeance of God, then guess what? You can sit back and be mistreated. It's possible. If you consider Christ, who though no deceit was found in him, he did not open his mouth and yet he was killed. He waited patiently for God to judge. Christ is our example. We must not take matters into our own hands. Yet, how often do we do so? I was so convicted of this. How often do we seek to avenge ourselves or seek to force justice on a situation, especially with our cruel words? 
Don't just think baby killers. Think in your marriage. Think about the words that you use to try to make wrong a right that someone else has committed, right? But Romans 12, 19 reminds us, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave room for the wrath of God. How much room does God's wrath need? (laughs) I think we should back up, right? Let's leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do you realize that God's wrath and God's vengeance is part of his gospel? It's part of the gospel. Easter morning, I stood up and preached hell, point number one, right? It's part of the gospel. The gospel is not the gospel without the wrath and the vengeance of God. We must include it. We must tell people. We must speak of it. So teach it without apology. It is even wholesome for us to consider it. It is that word wholesome to teach it to our children. Let us meditate on it for it teaches us at least in part. Let's not make light of our sin as we'll see in the coming verses. A fourth point, and I'm not going to go through this one because I'm getting carried away, is this compels us to preach the gospel. The wrath of God compels us to preach the gospel, does it not? I heard one secular comedian say after being evangelized, he says, how much do you have to hate a person not to share the gospel with them? Preach the gospel. Tell people to flee from God's wrath. So just because God is slow to anger does not mean that he is not angry. Okay, we need, wow. Is that, did I just do three verses? Okay. Um, Okay, so let's think about Saul's disobedience. Saul is in this text, remember, he is, a, he is an, an instrument of God's vengeance. And it is interesting to me that for once, it seems, Saul is finally quick to obey. Right? He jumps at it. He immediately jumps at this command that God has given him. But we read, of course, that he did not obey completely. In verse 7, Saul defeated the Amalekites, but in direct disobedience to God, he spared the king and some of the good spoil. So with Saul's sin in view, we come to these shocking words in verses 10 and 11. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Okay, now we're, we're going to come back to this more, Lord willing, next week and, and give a fuller treatment to this because we come to this concept of the Lord repenting or the Lord regretting, or the Lord changing his mind. And that, that merits a, a fuller treatment. But just to give you a, a preview of the coming attraction so you feel this tension with me. All right, look down at verse 11. Okay, I want you to see, right? I want you to see this. Verse 11, God says, I regret I have made Saul king. Do you see that? Now look at verse 29. We didn't read this, but look at this. Samuel's talking about God, and look what he says. God will not lie or have regret. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Verse 11, I regret I have made Saul king. Verse 29, God says, I will not have regret. Right? Samuel saying of God, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then look again at verse 35. The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king, all right? If I was going to make up a book and try to trick the world with a religion, I would not put things like that in, in it, 
That's just me. I'm not that smart, but I, I don't think I would. I don't think I would do that. We're going to come back to that later. Um, but let's first talk about this matter of Saul's disobedience, because I don't want us to miss this plain top meaning of the text. Right? I think a lot of times when we come to something hard, it can be very easy to miss the plain meaning of the text while we're trying to solve this hard theological problem. I think this this happens a lot. I do this sometimes. Both God and Samuel are both shown as showing extreme sorrow over Saul's disobedience. And when God is said to regret or repent of making Saul king, we can go ahead and say God is not like, man, I messed that one up, or it wasn't a poor choice in judgment, or he wasn't, he wasn't kicking himself, right? He didn't, it's not that he didn't see it coming. The Bible, that would not make sense in the Bible. The, the whole Bible is consistent describing that God is sovereign and that he knows the beginning and the end. Do you remember Isaiah 46? I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Right? God is not frustrated with a lapse of judgment. This, this is not what is going on. Instead, God is grieving the presence of sin. That's how I take this first instance of regret. God is grieving Saul's lack of disobedience. A really helpful passage here, if you remember uh, back in Genesis, when, when God is looking at the world before the flood and he's, uh, he sees that man's heart is constantly wicked all the time, only inclined to evil, the Lord says in Genesis 6.6, 6, and the Lord was sorry, it's the same Hebrew word, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart, right? That's the picture. It's a picture of sorrow. And that makes sense, right? If you're repenting, there's a, there's a sense of sorrow over sin. It's, this is an emotional expression of sorrow over sin. To add complexity to this passage, Samuel is in a crisis of faith. You'll notice that he was angry and he stayed up all night crying out to the Lord. I won't go into that much right now, but I think that he is very concerned about Israel's future, right? But I think more than that, he is probably having a crisis of theology. I don't know if you've had those. I had a serious one back in 2007 when my whole world got turned upside down, understanding new things about God. But it seems like Samuel is having a crisis of theology. He's traumatized. It seems he's struggling to accept God's response to Saul. It seems like God's sovereignty has fallen apart. Right? God is telling, God told Samuel, make this guy king. And Samuel's like, are you sure? This doesn't seem like a good idea. You don't really want to do that. And God's like, this is my guy. And now God's saying, this is not my guy. Right? It seems like Samuel's like, what, what is going on? Who is this God? Okay, but we'll, we'll sort that out later. Because um, I want to turn to the matter of Saul's partial obedience here. Okay, In verses 12 through 23, we have one of the great confrontations in all the Bible. This one ranks up there with Nathan going to David saying, you are the man. It's fun for me to do with my friends named David. You are the man. It's the NIV. But Saul gets up early, or Samuel gets up early to confront Saul, and he finds, look at this, this is hysterical. In verse, tw in verse 12, what did Saul just finish doing? The guy just finished building a monument to himself, right? A bronze statue commemorating his wonderful act of obedience. 
<laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, just if, if, if I did that every time I preached a good sermon, just set them up in the parking lot. Right, you saw me out there building my little sandcastles, right? Setting up a monument to himself. He was so tickled, so pleased with his obedience that he decided to build a monument to himself, right? And then in verse 13, he greets Samuel like everything is all honky-dory. Verse 13, blessed be you in the Lord, right? I've performed the commandment of the Lord. <laughs> and then Samuel has like one of the great one-liners in all the Bible. What is the bleating of sheep that I hear, right? So Saul argues and pleads his case and they go back and forth, back and forth in a while until Samuel finally lays down the hammer in verse 23. Has 22 and 23. Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, it is better to obey than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Let me give you several observations that we can learn about the importance of obedience. The first is this. Partial obedience is disobedience. I think we've talked about this before in Samuel. But it bears repeating. Partial obedience is sin. Saul mostly obeyed God's command, but not all of it. And therefore, his entire effort was rejected by God. A little sin can taint a big good thing, and it becomes all bad. There are no A's for effort, no close enoughs, no you tried hard. God's law requires perfect obedience. And this shows us how high the standard of God's law is for God's people. You remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? It's not enough that you don't murder your brother. You must not be angry with your brother. It's not enough that you love your neighbor. You must love also your enemies. It's not enough you don't commit adultery. You must not even have lustful intent. It's not enough that you live a good life or that you're more mature than some people at your church. Instead, be holy as I am holy. Remember, we've talked about this in our Sunday series, our temptation to minimize or flatten the law. So don't lower the goal so you can dunk. A second observation. Spiritual pride stunts our growth. This one, I think, is probably the big takeaway for me. This is a very common struggle for all of us. Saul thinks that he's obeyed God, and therefore he has declared himself obedient, right? Now, often we don't do this out loud. Sometimes we do. Um, I hear this in the counseling room a lot. I don't struggle with alcohol anymore. Uh, it's not a temptation anymore. And that, that may be true, but we remember, let any man... Not say that he's above sin there. Take heed lest he fall, right? He's congratulating himself, blind to the fact that he wasn't done and that he missed the whole standard. How often do we do this in our own lives? How often do I or do you have some sort of spiritual expectation for yourself, right? We read, be holy as I am holy, and we're like, uh, let's go to something else I can understand, <laughs> right? I mean, have you thought about that command today? Have you been measuring yourself by that today? No, we lower it to something that's more like attainable and then we measure ourselves to that, right? This is why we compare ourselves to people that are slightly less mature than us rather than those who are Jesus, <laughs> right? Um, we have these spiritual expectations and once we think that we've met them, we think that we've arrived. Maybe you have finally found victory over some besetting sin or maybe you 
have your devotions every day and you have been for a long time and the people you talk with are really struggling with that or whatever your besetting sin is. Maybe you have matured more than most of the friends in your circle. Maybe you're the most mature in your Sunday school class. Do you find yourself patting yourself on the back? Not only is your newfound pride a new sin problem, but now you're setting yourself up in a position for trouble, a position to relax. We are not called to be more holy than our friends. We are called to be holy as Christ is holy. I'm reminded of first in Second Peter chapter 1, you remember this, this picture of, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness, right? And if you don't have godliness, you need brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And then it says, for if these qualities are yours and increasing, we must be increasing in godliness. You're not there in any part of your spiritual life. We have not arrived in anything. There's no sin that I'm beyond. There's no, tempt no temptation that I'm immune to. Nothing, right? We have not arrived. We must be increasing. A third observation, we, must, we worship by obeying. We worship God by obeying God, right? Um, Saul was arguing that he was going to use the sheep to make sacrifices, but Samuel's response is what? Obedience is always better than any religious activity. Put it like this. Obedience is the ultimate church activity. If you want to please God, obey him. Obey him. A lot of times the question I ask when life is, when things are hard and confusing is, what is the next, th what, what can I do right now to please God? It's a great question to ask, especially when things are confusing. What can I do right now to please God? We can worship God in all sorts of ways. So often we think in primarily in terms of singing. But you can sing with a totally wicked heart, right? God doesn't care about your singing. He wants obedience. That comes first. God is honored when God is obeyed, especially when the cost is high. I will skip this final point See if you can notice the implications about idolatry, right? We read about some, we learn some interesting things about idolatry here in verse 23. And let me just, let me close with this. This is a sobering text, I think. We have uh, discussed the severity of a God who destroys sinners, again, two, two sermons in a row. We have discussed the, the annihilation of the Amalekites. And we've also seen that partial obedience is not good enough. And if, by God's grace, you have been willing to look at your own heart, the Spirit will be revealing ways that you're only obeying partially. Only partially. And God requires total, absolute obedience. Aren't you thankful for Jesus? Only one man has obeyed like this. Right? Don't read this story and think, Saul, what an idiot. Think, I'm with Saul. Partial obedience. Only one man has obeyed God like this. Praise God for our older brother, Jesus Christ, who bore the full wrath like the Amalekites of God and also obeyed with complete and total obedience. Jesus is our only hope for acceptance. Let me plead with you to align yourself with him. Father, I thank you that you've not destroyed us in our sin. 
I thank you for Christ who is destroyed on our behalf. Father, teach us to obey. Teach us that obedience is better than sacrifice and any outward sign of religion. Make us a people who are sincere worshipers of God, that we would obey you no matter what the cost. We ask this in your name. Amen.